At the signal, time will be out of joint. Hello and welcome to the inaugural transmission of Weird Signal, a podcast dedicated to all things eerie, weird and hauntological. We are going to be exploring cult films, fringe ideas and strange sounds. I'm Sean and I'm here with Lucy. Hello. Uh, So that word we just used, hauntology, um, refers to a particular branch of post-structuralist philosophy and we're not going to try and explain it here because that's what we're ultimately hoping to do or at least explore as we do this podcast. You will have to listen to every episode of this podcast to understand the Exactly. We order. don't even understand it ourselves because we've not recorded them yet. <laughs> but essentially, it emerged in 1993 in the work of a philosopher called Jack Derrida. He was essentially exploring the idea of where Marxism was going in the at the end of the 20th century because we had this idea that it was the new world order um, ideologies no longer existed that communism we were, had fallen call, communism has fallen and what we were looking at now was a um, neoliberal future this idea that neoliberalism had emerged as the natural order of things and that was the good news as Francis Fukuyama put it this idea that um, we were in entering a state of peace and equilibrium but uh, history was in a sense over History is over and we're just now entering kind of natural humanity. Mm. Um, But his idea was that um, this was kind of a a flawed idea and he was essentially looking at what the place of Marxism in the world was now. Um, And that's where he started talking about this idea of spectres. It was the sense that um, Marxism as an ideology uh, still existed because it was inherent to Marxism that it had a particular sense of where it was going, it had a particular future. And to say it was dead was to imply that it was resigned to the past. But this this was kind of... This was something that was inimical to his idea of Marxism because um, Marx, as he saw it, was this philosopher who had a very particular sense of history and a very particular sense of time, and that Marxism as a philosophy existed outside of that. So what he coined um, ontology to describe was the sense that it had this double existence, that it was present and it was a... It was a real force in the world, but that it was kind of the spectre of it and that it would come back. Yes, indeed. Sort of like um, he points out that in this insistence that communism is over, that Marxism has fallen, it almost feels as if they are trying to reassure themselves a little too much, as if their real worry isn't that communism is gone, but that like the ghost, the perennial ghost, is going to come back. Mm. In fact, this spectral character of Marxism, and Derrida's book on the subject was called Spectres of Marx, is encoded at the very beginning of uh, Marxism. In the opening line of the Communist Manifesto, there is a spectre haunting Europe, the spectre of communism. But since, um, since Derrida's writings, it's actually taken on a new dimension because a lot of what he... He, uh, a lot of what he described to kind of explain how this spectral presence worked uh, revolved around creating a particular critical framework 
to explore this concept of a spectral idea. Something here and not yet here, as, as we've just said. And what happens in the mid-2000s is the word hauntology uh, is itself resurrected to talk about a particular aesthetic tendency that um, critics like Simon Reynolds and Mark Fisher had noted in uh, experimental music with musicians like Burial and uh, the acts on the Ghost Box label like the Advisory Circle and Belbury Pollock uh, who creates a sound that feels like a, a, an arrival out of uh, a past which never actually existed. Mm. And what Mark Fisher, in what would turn out to be his very last book, and in fact uh, we are recording this on the anniversary of his uh, death by sheer ghoulish coincidence, is um, he... In his book, The Weird and the Eerie, when he discusses eeriness as a particular aesthetic quality, the eerie is precisely those moments where there is a failure between presence and absence, where something is present spectrally, or absent spectrally for that matter, which draws our attention to the archetypal figure of the ghost. Mm. And a lot of what uh, Mark Fisher was doing through his work was to apply these this framework of hauntology retroactively to identify particular spectres of, um, of, of all sorts of varieties in earlier media. Mm. And that's ostensibly what we're going to be doing over the course of this podcast. Yes, we, and that is why we are discussing the stone tape. So the Stone Tape was a TV drama from the BBC uh, that came out in 1971. It was written by Nigel Neal, who is otherwise famous for the Quatermass series, and uh, directed by Peter Sasdy, uh, starring Michael Bryant as Peter Brock and, and uh, Jane Asher as Jill Greeley. And it was filmed in Surrey, and it essentially follows the, the work of a team of scientists who are... Um, who have been gathered together in a refurbished um, Victorian mansion to uh, essentially work on discovering a new recording media. They're the um, pure research department of this uh, large electronics company. Called Ryan Electrics. Ryan Electrics, With that fantastically right. aesthetic logo. Yes, it's all typed out in uh, Windsor, I think. It's, mm. all very, it, it, it's very of its time in the best possible way. But their researchers immediately run into problems when they find out part of the facility, which has been undergoing work for months, hasn't been renovated at all. And they discover that the workmen have refused to clear this room because um, they reported ghost sightings. Uh, which, being men of science, the team largely laugh off. Uh, However, uh, Jane Asher's character, Jill, mm -hmm. is uh, psychically sensitive in some way, and she becomes aware that, no, there is indeed a spectral presence in that room. And we later see that she is the first to witness it, mm. although the others have differing effects, like a lot of them hear it but don't see it. And others are completely oblivious to it, even if they're in a room full of people who are detecting it. And these people being folk of science, or science folk if you will, um, they decide when, once they can no longer ignore the fact that a phenomenon of some kind exists. A demonstrable repeating phenomenon. Mm, they decide, okay, we're going to be scientific about it. Let's actually just try and figure out what this thing is. What's its mechanism? What triggers it? Mm, and in doing so, they realise that um, the ob objective of their researches, which they came out to do, has more or less fallen into their hands. Mm. Because 
if there is a ghost um, or kind of a psychic phenomenon that can be generated, then um, essentially what they're looking at is a new recording medium because they realize that um, it's not so much the uh, the ghost is the present, but it's the ghost and well, the ghost is being generated by the stones around it because the ghost is in fact an imprint on the room of an event in the past. A ghost is in fact a psychic recording of a traumatic event. A ghost mm. is not a disincarnate mind or a disembodied soul that still inhabits the world. It has no more uh, consciousness or awareness than, well, indeed the stones around it. It's just a, a particularly potent echo. Peter, it's the room. What? Just the room itself, nothing else. Well, do you mind telling me There how... is no ghost. Oh, but on. I hey, heard it! All right, try this for size. The room holds an image. And when people go in there, they pick it up. What you hear or what you see is inside your own brain. So uh, what they realise, well, what they make their first objective is to try and control it, to try and seize it, essentially to use their technology to create a controlled apparition that they've brought about because beforehand it had been emerging more or less what seemed to be randomly. Um, so they devote all their resources to um, trying to evoke this spirit. So they, t- uh, they do a lot of work with lasers, with different sonic frequencies. And, uh, but the result of all their experimentation is they erase it, they delete it. It's an absolute failure and they, they realise that it's gone and it's not coming back. Tell you what he's done. Do you, do you know what he's done? He's wiped the tape. But then they realise that all that's happened is they've brushed the first layer of dust off of this strange recording medium, and in fact, beneath it, there are deeper, older, more degraded layers of recording, like a chalkboard which still has the vague impressions of what's been written on it years previously. Mm. Some deep-level record, much older, so old. And in um, well, in similar fashion, it is Jill who is the first to experience what these things actually contain, mm. and it turns into turns out to be a fairly strange apparition. Yes, she has an experience of a entirely non-human entity, a recording of something that is millennia old, which does not in any way resemble a human being, a recording of something absolutely primordial and inhuman. And the experience of meeting this thing or witnessing this uh, terrifying recording is so traumatic that um, she falls from the top of the staircase in this room to her death. Mm. Um, but there's some implication that she was killed by the shock of it. Mm. Um, but it doesn't quite end there, because uh, the, well, the the ending of the film is the realisation that Jill has joined the many ghosts claimed by this room in the past. Mm. And the last scene is her apparition coming and calling for Peter, mm. um, who is unable to do anything about it. Chill. 
And that is Nigel the Stone Tape. Yes, it's absolutely wonderful. It's easy to get hold of. And if, uh, oh, we felt absolutely recommend that you go and find it if you, if you fancy it. If you fancy some classic 70s BBC sci-fi weirdness. Mm. But um, I, I guess the first question would be, what is this thing we're what looking the, at? What is that thing? That because it's very, very, it's um, very, very striking how it actually appears. Because first, because it's uh, like I said, nothing about it indicates humanity at all. It starts off; she just sees these floating red lights uh, in the hallway. She and uh, following them, she kind of descends into this. Uh, green vortex of energy I suppose mm. and what you see around her is sort of almost the, the room falling away and she is in the midst of this um, totally antediluvian landscape mm. with uh, an alien sky overhead. It's like she's entered into the world that is contained by the stones to some extent because uh, she actually she starts ascending the stairs. There's this old staircase that we is well established in the in the context of the film that it goes nowhere. It just leads up to the middle of the room and then drops away. Mm. Uh, but when she is encountered by this thing uh, that lies in the deep levels of the stone, she can actually she looks up the stones and she can see daylight, uh, even though this is a scene that takes place at night. Um, and so it's it's unclear what it, where she's gone but she has left the room behind her as you say mm. um, and gone into this other world and that's when she's been that's when she dies or that's when she at least leaves the physical form that she's she's entered in mm. so I want to talk a little bit about H.P. Lovecraft mm. because um, I have I'm going to assume that sort of our listeners uh, are probably going to have at least a passing awareness of Lovecraft but um if, just in case you don't, Lovecraft was uh, an early 20th century horror writer, and he was one of the first to really combine horror with science fiction mm. uh, into what was called weird fiction. And one of the tropes that uh, runs throughout his works is this emphasis on the uh, unimportance of human existence and our ignorance of what it is of the actual nature of the world and the universe and of our own history. And when Jill starts to figure out that, no, there are deeper layers of recording, and this goes back a long time, because in fact, um, when they are, they begin by consulting the parish records, and they find that not only was there an exorcism done about uh, 70 years previous, there was an exorcism, an exorcism done at the same site before the house was built uh, several hundred years ago. And indeed, there's an indication that this phenomenon goes back at least 7,000 years and presumably much longer. Mm. So there are, two love, there are two specific Lovecraftian uh, currents here. One is this notion of ancientness, mm. of primordiality, that um, human beings are accustomed to thinking of themselves as, you know, there, there wasn't really anything before us. There was, um, there certainly weren't minds before uh, we, we were on the scene and we are the, the crown of evolution we are the pinnacle of it but what Lovecraft depicted in his fiction was an earth of extreme antiquity in which human beings we just happen to be here at the moment but we're not going to be here for very long and we haven't been here for very long in fact and there have been many deeply strange uh, presences on the earth going all the way back to its very very beginnings mm. and it feels as if what uh, 
uh, Jane Ash's character Jill encounters here is one of the is a recording or an, an, an imprint of one of these extremely ancient inhuman presences something so utterly alien that its effect has been felt for thousands of years after its presumed departure from uh, this location mm. and there's also something just very inherently Lovecraftian about just that idea of the, the length of time, let alone what happened in it, but the sense of deep time, which was a relatively new uh, concept to the world at the, at the time he was, um, he was writing, mm. um, that it was possible to trace back, um, huma- well, trace back the, the earth to times that are just inconceivably ancient. And there's the sense that this sheer expansiveness of time in itself was a source of terror the mm. um just the vastness um creating this sense of this sense of awe and terror because up until the <clears throat> 19th century um people in the west were accustomed to think of sort of inheritors of the, of the judeo-christian islamic tradition were accustomed to thinking of the earth's age in thousands of years that's a kind of that it begins with adam really mm. and um but what was discovered by the western naturalists the natural philosophers of the, of the victorian era was this no there is an there's an extreme antiquity Mm. Uh, which is especially traumatic for the Western mindset in the way it wasn't necessarily for um, Eastern cultures who are very accustomed to thinking of uh, the, uh, the the universe as, as being millions upon millions of years old anyway. Mm. Um, but it, what this does is it kind of pulls the rug out under the feet of uh, Western humanity because we are so accustomed to thinking of ourselves as the centre and the pinnacle to find that maybe we are incidental. Maybe we aren't actually important is a very, very traumatic cultural event. Uh, this was in, and it was uh, Nietzsche in his famous proclamation that God is dead. The things that have killed God are things like science and history, this growing sense of where we actually are and where we've come from, not being uh, out of a shining divinity, but out of matter out mm. of um, just sheer physical stuff. Mm. Uh, this leads me on to the other point that I wanted to make about the Lovecraftian connection, which is um, to really focus on materialism. Mm. And I think that to appreciate what Derrida means when he talks about hauntological occurrences, you, uh, you need to have an appreciation of uh, materialism, especially when it comes to things like technology. Because we're very accustomed to thinking of um, information technology and recording technology and digital technology as being these ephemeral uh, things. Now, we literally call it the cloud. Um, Mm. We think of these things as existing uh, outside of the physical, when in fact they are deeply and profoundly physical. But things like... uh, a computer or, or a mobile phone, these kinds of technology, they function when they distract us away from their uh, their physicality, from their materiality, and make us think of them spectrally. Mm. And I think Nigel Neal was very, very conscious of these ideas, or, or some version of these ideas, when he was writing the stone tape, because uh, the idea of the ephemerality and materiality of memory is something that's very much um, very much at the centre of a lot of the, the dialogue. 
because uh, we have the central narrative of uh, digital recording mediums. Uh, there's a great kind of spiel introduced by the character Peter near the beginning of the film where he's talking about uh, what we're working with at the moment is electric tape. This is seen as or magnetic tape, um, which is seen as the, the, the current new recording medium. Uh, it's clear, it's good, it's, um, it's effective. But at the same time, uh, it's fragile and it's prone to decay. Um, there's a lot of stress on that. He, um, and what they're working towards is this idea that um, they want something that will keep data that won't decay. Uh, they're talking about creating something that they refer to as the digital crystal, which sounds weirdly um, similar to what we ended up with <laughs> CD technology. And, and indeed, and, and, and uh, silicon. And silicon, yes. Um, and indeed, this was kind of at the centre of a lot of uh, discourse when CDs and digital recordings first came out. There was that, I can't remember where it came from, but a marketing expression was perfect clarity forever. <laughs> uh, or perfect sound forever and it was this utopian idea that everything would be frozen in time and it was possible to harness this in a way that wouldn't deteriorate um, and that's what they hope to get from um, from the stone tape but at the same time they find out it does decay like a tape decays uh, to a certain extent although that's that's something that we're going to have to discuss later as well when we get onto the, the science of the tape itself mm. but, um, but there are other things like uh, well other things present in the script like um, when we go to the archives, what we see, or when we go to an archive when they are the, trying to track down the history of the, the house. Pa- uh, the parish records. The parish kept records. By, kept by the doddery old vicar. Yes. yes. And so they, um, and what we're seeing here is a kind of failure of memory because the parish records, they, they point to things, but they can't really clarify what's happening or it's kind of distorted by the perceptions of the people recording them at the time and also the notes are incredibly disorganized and it takes them a long time to find anything and we're also kind of seeing extension of that in the vicar himself (laughs) who can barely remember what he is saying in a sentence by the end of the sentence Mm. and he remembers everything by the end but it does take him a while to get that kind of recollection uh so he's he's kind of the embodiment of the unreliable medium in that respect (sighs) i feel i'm obsolete but not sinful i think um the theme of decay is very interesting with here in relation to recording mediums because it feels like it feels to me that um a recording medium decaying is uh, an assertion of its materiality and of the impermanence of its materiality. There was something like that. Um, I remember sort of like uh, once going through sort of um, going through some DVDs I had and being almost sort of I'm not going to say traumatized, but I remember <laughs> being feeling really surprised when I saw that um, I must have stored them incorrectly because the DVDs had actually kind of decayed almost. They mm. had sort of, there was. Um, uh, I'm not quite sure what it was, but some kind of damper got into them. And it's this kind of reminder, so like, no, this is an impermanent thing. It is a material thing. Mm. And I think, and this is Lovecraft connection here, because, and this, ti- and this materiality ties in with their whole approach to the haunting, which is a scientific approach, a materialist, rationalist approach to a phenomenon that is usually regarded as being purely supernatural. And for Lovecraft, he... Um, try to frame his horror. Like I said, he combined it with science fiction. So his whole raison d'être, indeed. And his uh, his monsters are extraterrestrial. They are uh, deeply ancient, or the result of uh, human genetic decay. They are they're not supernatural, or they're supernatural only in that they are expressions of the natural which we do not understand. They do not come from a 
non-material outside. They are expressions of materiality. Not materiality we can recognise necessarily or understand, but they are part of the same cosmos as we are. Mm-hmm. And there's something very uh, cold about that outlook, which I think you find in the Stone Tape as well, which is a very cold um, 90 minutes of television. Mm. It is very, very um, clinical. It's men in rooms with white coats doing science. Yes. And be and uh, I think it's interesting. I, I, I know that you want to talk a bit more about Jill later on. Yes. But I find it very interesting that the, uh, that the woman, and I think she is actually the only named female character, is yes. the, the sensitive, is the psychic who is able to detect this thing, but then the men come with their, with their science and their rationality mm. and try to solve it and you know, screw it all up. Yes, we do have one like wordless secretary, um, but, and, and then, no, there's the bar woman, there's the barmaid. There's who, barmaid. Yes, she's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, um, but on the subject of, um, of Lovecraft as well, um, one of the things that's quite notable about Lovecraft, um, well, one of his main accomplishments that doesn't really get talked about as much, is the fact that he was more or less the initiator of the ancient alien genre. He indeed, he was, Which yes. is now uh, so gloriously celebrated today in such programmes as Ancient Aliens. <laughs> um, but... Um, a lot of this comes out in, in stories like his, his classic Call of Cthulhu, which is about this, this ancient entity that's regarded as a god, but is in fact a being from another world. Um, Actually, and- that, an interesting thing about that, again, is that uh, Cthulhu, when they uh, encounter him or it, mm. um, again, so again, there's this assertion that Cthulhu is composed of matter. But Cthulhu was not composed of our kind of matter. It's a mm. different kind of matter with different properties, but it is still matter. The same thing with the Maigo, uh, which is another kind of another ancient alien story, essentially, because mm. that that's these kind of creatures from another world that crop up in primordial myths. That's uh, his story, The Whisperer in Darkness. Mm, one of his best. Yes. Um, but yeah, there's um, some mention of the fact that they they kind of... They're set up for space travel rather than terrestrial travel, and there's this idea that they fly through the ethers and that they kind of vibrate they have at different things. Yes, they yeah. have wings that can somehow propel them through space. Space wings, yes. Yes. And they're, ma- and they're a kind of fungus. They're fantastic. They're some, yeah. they're one, I think they are actually one of the most singularly imaginative aliens ever, ever com- conceived of in fiction. They're mm. wonderful. About uh, the, um, the archetype, the, I think the most classic ancient alien story that Lovecraft wrote is At the Mountains of Madness. Oh gosh! Where yes. um, uh, intrepid explorers in the Antarctic encounter or discover the uh, this incredibly ancient city, as hundreds of millions of years old, so <laughs> like far older than human beings, and this was the colony of uh, an extremely advanced extraterrestrial mm. race which seeded life on Earth in the first place. And not just explorers, but a research team. A research mm. team that is almost analogous to this team, um, in that they have these new technologies with which to measure the world, or this new science with which to measure the ancientness of the world and get to grips with very much with the physicality of, of this sense of deep time. Um, but the reason I'm talking about ancient aliens, um, particularly in light of it, um, the Stone Tips creator Nigel Neal, is the fact that um, one of his most famous works just before the Stone Tape was uh, part of the Quatermass series, Quatermass and the Pit, which is more or less the archetypal ancient alien series, uh, or well, it's an ancient alien story, in that it depicts um, the apparition or the echoes of... Um, these um, sort of Martian settlers that came to Earth 
many, many thousands of years ago. But well, I think it'd probably be about a billion. A billion years, years yeah. ago, um, and are impossibly ancient, but have not so, not just left their echo, but left something very conscious behind. And in fact, kind of spoiler alert, but we're going to be talking about this anyway. <laughs> have um, create well set a certain destiny for humanity through their presence uh, in a way that was echoed interestingly by um, by. Uh, the, the book at the story and film 2001 A Space Odyssey uh, by Arthur C. Clarke. Um, but I'm certainly, I think there is a certain case to be made, although it's not one I'd stake myself on entirely, that what we're seeing is an ancient alien, essentially, or something that could be thought about in those terms. If not yes. from another planet, then something, something very much alien to us. It's utter, an utterly inhuman primordial presence. Exactly. There'd be much older impressions underneath much deeper. How far are you trying to go back? A long way. Stone Tape has some interesting sort of uh, repercussions for uh, so-called parapsychology, those who do try to take a scientific approach to hauntings. Yes, that's right. I mean, it did in fact, it has in fact, the name The Stone Tape has uh, lent its name to a, um, a branch of parapsychology, the stone tape theory, as people are calling it. Um, and this is something that I wasn't actually able to establish. That um, the well, some people, some people on the internet have said <laughs> that um, an idea roughly analogous to the stone tape theory, as it is as it, as it exists now in paranormal circles, uh, had been written about as early as the 1940s by an author called H. H. Price. Um, who is not the same Harry Price as the Price Magic Library, I, I later found out. Oh. Um, but there was also a chap called T.C. Lethbridge who wrote about similar things in the 1960s. Um, but from what I can gather, Nigel Neal coined the name The Stone Tape and it was such a perfect uh, representation of this idea that it stuck and mm. is now known as The Stone Tape and taken fairly seriously in a lot of, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of paranormal circles um, <laughs> so to this very day. Um, but I wanted to talk briefly about the um, the background that led us to this this idea of um, why it's called the stone tape, essentially, because one of the first things that's readily apparent about this is it's not a tape. Um, but the idea of the tape here is important because uh, tape, unlike um, unlike say gramophone records or even radio necessarily, uh, was not new technology at the time, but um, but was distinctive for the fact that it was one of the first technologies to be purely, purely ephemeral or ethereal, basically in the in the in the sense that um, with a record you can see the little grooves. It's something that you can understand, like the sound travels through. Sound travels like this. It's very sophisticated, but that's the nuts and bolts of it. The same way with television, well, with film. Uh, you, if, you the, hold, if, you if you hold a light up to an image, it will project onto a thing, and if you run those images at great speed, they will appear to move. But Whereas mag magnetic tape is something that seems to be almost, you know, it's pure kind of force. It's a recording of an imprint that is, for someone not acquainted with um, the physics of tape recording, 
seemed almost magical. It's something immaterial. It's opaque, isn't it? Because, mm. You know, sort of like a, a, a length of magnetic reel with a recording on it looks the same as one, but does not. In a way that uh, a blank disc of vinyl is a blank disc of vinyl, and uh, empty celluloid is empty celluloid. But magnetic tape, uh, well, just the word magnetic, it mm. feels it feels sci-fi, doesn't it? Yes. It feels in that very classic fifties Reagan kind of sci-fi. And to put this in the context of parasite at the time, um, we've got to look at a bit of the history. So basically, um, parapsychology was originated with uh, the classic philosophical problem of the, the mind versus the body. Uh, what, what substance was the mind composed of? What was the mind? Was it a um, physical manifestation? Was it this other material existence that uh, De- René Descartes, famous for the Cognitive Ergo Sum, um, idea of being um, described as mind stuff or soul stuff as uh, phys- as having kind of unique physical properties. But it, but yes, and sort of like this also lends itself to other problems to do with how does an immaterial substance interact with a material substance? How can how can the ghost steer the machine? Is how people have put it. Precisely, and um, as the nineteenth century kind of uh, progressed, and a lot of um, a lot of kind of spiritual ideas were still about, but also kind of growing um, familiarity with materialist ideas. People were people were more aware of neuroscience. They were right, they were aware that the body was controlled by electrical impulses to some extent. They managed to do experiments uh, to demonstrate this in a fairly um, fairly consistent fashion. Um, and there was this idea that it could be something electronic, and it's something located in the in the mind or in the body. But there was some there was uncertainty about whether it was something purely limited to the body or something that could be conducted out of the body somehow. Um, and this was around the same time as the first electronic media was starting to emerge. So um, both audio recordings, but also crucially film. Um, and so uh, a lot of the ideas that emerged around parapsychology in the late 19th century were things like spirit photography, where people took pictures of the dead or took pictures of um, things where they believed that they could see ghosts or that there was some sort of psychic imprint but this wasn't a spiritualist thing. There was this was a kind of a naturalist approach to it because um, this was a kind of electronic resonance or something, um, or you know, something something that could manifest because it was inherently electrical mm. or inherently uh, physical. Uh, and this and this also gave rise to photography, which is the idea that you could project thoughts onto film. Mm. Yes, there's this, uh, and uh, there was some, There have been some parapsychological experiments of asking uh, the spirits to make an imprint onto a blank um, a reel of magnetic tape or blank um, fo- um, fo- photo photo tape. I want to say photo reel. The yeah. tape you use, the tape one would put into an old camera before we had uh, digital cameras. Um, yeah, and um, that they could, and, this, and yes, this idea that they could still interact with the material, and they could leave these impressions uh, on this uh, recording medium to mm. prove their existence. And, uh, and this kind of just created an environment where it was where it was believed that it, it was possible to uh, to do exactly what we see happen in the stone tape to have a. Uh, paranormal manifestation pinned down to a physical manifestation of mm. some measurable variety. Again, but this is, all this is, is a science we haven't discovered yet. Mm. This is as real as stars and radiation and electromagnetism. And we just need, we just need to find out the frequency almost. We just need to tune in to that signal. 
some kind of natural process, yeah? But freaky. Yeah, perhaps it only occurs under extreme conditions, some kind of extreme human output, emotion, terror, and that prints off. Like the shadow of the people from the big bomb blast. And yeah. we're sensitive to it. So you wanted to talk about, well, we've had the character of the priest come up as quite uh, a minor but significant character, in the mi- minor in their appearances but significant in their import. Yeah, the as, as a character, he's there to deliver certain pieces of information that the plot needs to carry on. Um, but what's interesting, um, framing this as, um, it certainly isn't the central conflict um, of the uh, the peace sides versus religion, but it's interesting that this is one of the presences there, and I think it's used to emphasise, the materi- again, the materiality and the scientific Scientificality of mm. this phenomenon, in that, um, like I said uh, earlier, they discovered that um, an, ex- an exorcism was attempted at this house in the uh, beginning of the, of the beginning of the twentieth century, but it uh, it didn't work. The mm. ghost remained, and it drove the uh, inhabitants of the house uh, mad. Mm. And uh, the soldier, the American soldiers who were stationed there during the war. Um, encountered this as well the efforts of the uh, of the vicar to lay the ghost as they put it mm. don't work and the same thing happened hundreds of years ago before the house which I mean, we've not mentioned here but the house has the wonderful name Tascaland. yes oh it's a beautiful name isn't it a beautiful place mm. uh again but the exorcism doesn't work they're not able to control or banish this force Though um, so an interesting, uh, I think you would call it a Fortean dimension, is the fact that although their technique, their technology doesn't work to get rid of it, it is still um, the religious people who are like, of course there are ghosts. <laughs> so they, they know that these things exist. Uh, so in a certain sense, they are less blinkered than uh, the scientists. Mm. In fact, they sort of like, they know these things are there because they're sort of like, they believe the evidence of their own eyes, though they are wrong about the actual nature of it. Mm. But, uh, and there's another um, moment where, again, sort of, uh, the materi- where materiality is emphasised when um, this, the priest just has this uh, wonderful little ramble where he starts talking about rubbish and pollution. And he says that, yeah. And yes, he talks about sort of. He says that I, I sometimes think that pollution is the manifestation of sin today. Mm. And what's very interesting about this is that um, sin, which is uh, often, which we're accustomed to thinking of as, as a purely spiritual um, uh, phenomenon, it's something that uh, doesn't have a. a it, um, it's, it's not physically real. It's a, it's mm. a state that one's spirit is in. But he's suggesting that maybe it does have a physicality to it maybe it is material maybe it's actually the this thing in the world this thing you can seize with your hands that's killing the world and that's killing uh, our bodies as well it's interesting that he talks about it as kind of the new form of sin mm. as in almost to imply that he's accepted that we need a um, a material version of a spiritual concept for a post spiritual world exactly that's yes very Radical. <laughs> he seems to be at the stage of his career where, like, he can just slip radical notions in without really risking his prospects. Well, like, like he's C of E. He can put. He can, in a certain sense, I imagine, he can believe whatever he wishes. <laughs> mm. um, but yeah, I mean, that idea of um, that idea of modernity uh, 
as just a, as a thematic dimension to the the stone tape as well is something that's very interesting because um, one of the other great kind of tensions um, that happens in the in the stone tape is the tension between science and capitalism, hmm. um, or kind of science versus engineering. Uh, and in the sense that science deals with discovery and it's motivated by the search for knowledge, whereas um, te- engineering is um, is closely related to science. It's analogous to science, but it's motivated by the need for results, it's for concrete results and it's, controllable things. It's doing something. Yes. It's it's uh, create. It's building something. It's making something. Yes. And kind of the the idea of kind of this capitalist or just the the, the economic pressure. We should affecting say, the team. Yes. yes, we should say like the reason why they've been sent to Tascalands in the first place is that um, um, Mr. Ryan of Ryan Electrics is terrified of the Japanese in this, um, in the way that sort of like immediately dates um, it's all very uh, um, in, very deliciously is there is this absolute terror that Japan is going to become the economic centre of the world almost overnight mm. that it's going to and uh, that the West will lose its precedence in the economy um, going back to Derrida briefly um, it's it kind of plays into this this thing that he talks about of the ten plagues of the modern age of the new world order mm. as he pretty much describes it um, one of which is kind of incessant and inescapable economic war between powers between yes. Europe and America, between Europe and America and the Eastern Bloc, and between and from between all and and Japan. J- Japan is very high on the register there because um, mm, um, Japan. Um, at, it was at this point where Japan's economic ascendancy was starting because most of the twentieth century, the Soviet Union was the second largest single economy of the world. Um, but as the uh, century got on, and Japan like kicks itself into overdrive and explodes into um, second place in a very very short period of period of time. Uh, I've got a sort of like um, the expected sort of like global dom- dominance of Japan. Of course, doesn't ever really uh, happen because uh, inherent instabilities of capitalism all yes. start stagnating after a while. The uh, but what, though, of course, today sort of like uh, the concern is uh, China's um, growing economic, uh, political, and uh, I imagine eventually cultural superiority and uh, uh, extending its hegemony over the East. But um, we're getting a tiny little bit off subject. But But um, for the people of the stone tape, it's Japan. Yes, and it's interesting that it's Japan as well, because as well as the um, kind of economic instability, there's this all... It's sort of tinged with this older idea of uh, race and inscrutability that they're this oh kind god, of, it's awful. like kind of yeah. alien culture that is alien society that is um, is kind of is better at this game than they are in a way that they don't understand and feel threatened by. That a, comes across very, very profoundly in the Stone Tape. And there's a wonderful. There's actually the begin the beginning. It's horrible. I mean, it's absolutely yeah. the, the, the um the beginning of the the Stone Tape begins when they arrive in Tascaland. They have their sort of like very, very kind of like frat boyish ritual, which is oh, killing the Martian. We're like fifty years old. Oh, it's awful. It makes us all the more obscene, doesn't it? Mm. Um, yes, they have this ritual, killing the Martian, with some poor soul that's dressed up as the company mascot which is a uh, I think he, I think it's Terry the Martian or something like mm. that and uh, they sort of like pick him up and throw him in sort of like onto the floor and rip him apart and there is sort of like um, God I think he's meant to be the Japanese but they do <laughs> Yeah, well, they certainly kind of like start talking about the Japs, about the Japanese in very derogatory terms, immediately calling them the Japs and talking about a boot in the gut of old Nippon and stuff. And 
and yeah, so that kind of changes what they're doing. But what they said, and they feel threatened by it because their their sense is that they're these kind of like old men, um, kind of essentially an older breed of scientists for whom it was very much a kind of cottage industry, this kind of whiz-bang stuff that they do in their sheds. And they're very, very stuffy in their reasoning and don't have nearly the kind of energy or vibrancy that they see emerging in these new economies mm. uh, or kind of old economies becoming new powers. Because um, in, 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 the, in the thing, sort of like it's very interesting to emphasise the, uh, the, the capitalist dimension here because what capitalism is very good at doing is disrupting and uh, deleting traditions and cultures and customs, mm. and uh, so although the West is very is, is very accustomed to the idea of being uh, at the centre of the economic world, um, the, the market doesn't care about <laughs> anything like this. Um, a, um, the market goes um, where there is profit to be had, where there is efficiency, where there is capital to, mm. to be generated. And the Eastern economies, the Japanese economy, um, had, was just demonstrating that it could do this really well, much better than um, Britain could with its sort of like um, which was lacking that kind of innovative spirit mm. um, which uh, uh, which the Japanese were um, able to uh, yeah. project yes and also it's, it's this also getting off topic but there's a sense that kind of capital works in the same way ancient empires worked in that they just take the cult they take everything from the cultures that they they feed off and create a homogeny, <laughs> mm. uh, which um, Derrida talks about quite a lot, this idea of kind of the coming homogeny, um, which is totally different to the kind of Soviet homogeny. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so they're driven by this kind of capitalist impulse, and that kind of, even though they start out with this idea that, you know, we're doing fundamental research, what we're doing is is fueled by this scientific zeal that we're going to be the ones at the forefront of this great thing we've discovered. We're getting the new medium. Um, but at the same time, yeah. it's not fundamental research. It's not pure research. It's, no. um, it's just extending uh, the capitalist requisition of the world. Exactly. And it's the, it's the kind of the pressure, the external pressure of, uh, of, of corporate, of, mm. um, of, 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 of Ryan, of who the... is uh, an unseen character, yes. and uh, I choose to believe was an early prototype of the character of Wonton from Garfarenghi's Dark Place. <laughs> oh my god, you're right. <laughs> Except he's Irish. Uh, yeah, well, we, we don't know Wonton isn't Irish, but anyway, True. but uh, anyway, but he does just sort of like um, he is just this authoritative presence in the background, directing mm. their efforts, and they don't get a say in what they're doing. Really, much like Capital itself mm. is a is a literally spectral presence in that it has but it is a material thing which distracts our attention from its materiality Absolutely. and makes us think of it as spectral when in fact no it has a very very particular contingent historical material uh, character to it and this this kind of this spectre ends up both sabotaging any kind of scientific uh, angle that they could have achieved but also um, causes them to just fall out of just become entirely disinterested with any kind of scientific angle as soon as it presents any form of difficulty, mm. even though, um, well, and, and this is actually, as, as you were saying earlier, this is where the character of Jill comes in quite significantly. And she's, she stands out in a number of ways. She is the only woman in the team, crucially, and one of the few female, one of the, uh, I think a total of three female characters. <laughs> we have Jill, we have completely silent secretary, and we have uh, I'd have to pay lady. her more if she spoke. Exactly. <laughs> then we have the old lady at the bar, who was yeah. a good-time girl with the GIs in the war. Yes. Who is actually one of the more important characters, I think. And I want to go, into, I want to go into a bit into that later, but 
Um, one of the things that's crucial about Jill is that um, she is the programmer of the team. And it's it's interesting the kind of gender dimension that arises from that, as I just said, she is the only woman. And um, it's... It's one of those things that seems almost progressive and regressive at the same time in that she's um, she's spoken about in very high terms. She's someone that the entire team, despite all their bravado, they rely on her. There are some horrible lines. Uh, I, unfortunately, <clears throat> I forgot to bring my notebook with me, but I did jot them down. But one of them was one of them says something like, you're a very female one, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's kind of... It's peak 70s it in so many 70s. ways. There is, there is, yeah, there's the... The scene where they actually, like, um, the, the science dies and the capitalism rises up is that scene where they, they realise what they're going to do is... is um, well, they realise their discovery fits entirely into their economic model and they start cracking champagne bottles open yeah. and Make it- making unsavoury impressions... doing unsavoury impressions of the Japanese and also doing some very, very... Outright, just outright sexual harassment just, in the workplace. Just outright chill, groping, yes, in, in front of a huge crowd of people, and it's that's duh. it's awful. It it's is horrid, awful. and um, it's um, ext- it was extreme. It's like I said, it's very, very seventies. And I think an extension of that kind of gender dimension, like that, essentially sexism, creeps into the script a bit in the in the idea that she is a woman that she's sensitive. And she's the one that kind of picks up on the psychic frequencies more because she has her kind of lady magic. And <laughs> it's, it's kind of, you've got shades of the kind of really ultimately unprogressive new aginess about it. But mm. um, she is kind of, her position's interesting because um, she is the programmer. Um, and that's something I, I really wanted to talk about, is the fact that um, computer programming as a, as a science is something, the history of it is very much a female history. Yes. Uh, this is kind of forgotten now in the culture. It's being rediscovered, but was forgotten for a long time in the kind of nerd culture of Silicon Valley, which was very much kind of effectively kind of fratty. And fratty bro, fratty dude bro, bro types, yes. Um, kind of the merging of the nerd and the dude bro in, a, in the worst combination of ways. Yeah. Um, but before that, we had some very significant programmers in... Um, in NASA, the ones working in the space projects were large teams of women mm. um, because it was seen as kind of woman's work. It was seen as an extension of admin. A or secret- it's being a secretary. Yeah, it's like, you're sitting down and you're typing. That's like what women do. It's like the typing pool. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, even before that, like we, the first programmer, recognised the first programmer, is Ada Lovelace. And yes. This is going way back in time. But, um, but she kind of is, has elements of that. But at the same time, she's kind of... She's the one who's most connected with the science of what they're doing. She's there at the console. She's plugged in. She's she uh, figures it out. She figures it out. She figures everything out in the context of the film. She and in true Lovecraftian fashion, it costs her her life. Mm. Yeah, and we did we did actually say that like uh, no progress is made on the uh, psychic res- well on the research front, but some like hints are made. You know, little incremental hints are being made as to what this is. Um, but they more or less get, and those are ones that are discovered by Jill using her programs. Like she, mm. she figures out certain patterns that are emerging and starts getting close to the truth um, before it all, before it all falls through. Essentially, the nature of observed reality—that's what this program takes in. Old philosophy stuff. It might apply to her. Does she walk when there's nobody there? That's it. Makes a hell of a difference to the number of times. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about again is this idea of um, well, this goes back to. Back to Derrida, but really back to Shakespeare, in the sense that well, back to back to Shakespeare via Marx, 
in the sense that the way ghosts work in hauntology, they are recurring things, but they are shades of... They, they are something that is seen, uh, is there to see and be seen, but there's this sense that there's no, um, there's no interaction. Uh, Derrida talks about it in the context of um, the scene on the battle, on the parapet in Hamlet, where Horatio, Marcellus, and Hamlet are encountering the ghost of old Hamlet. And um, Horatio is, well, Marcellus is exalting Horatio, saying, you're a scholar, speak to it, as if we're in some sort of schoolroom and you can just, like, hold a discourse. Um, but ultimately they fail. But um, Derrida talks, well, Marx talks uh, talks a lot about this scene in Hamlet in relation to his own ideas of philosophy of time. But uh, Derrida kind of formulates it a lot more in saying that essentially it takes a great philosopher who with a very distinct and unique sense of time or the ability to conceive of things outside of time to be able to speak to ghosts uh, and no philosopher as far as Derrida was concerned was able to do that until Marx and this is this is going back to kind of the idea of the uniqueness of Marx because that he could see outside of time mm. um, and again this is kind of this is why I feel that the character of Jill is connected to she's representative of science of the kind of the um, morally victorious but ultimately unsuccessful the, the 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 great failure of science that takes place in the stone tape in that science whereas capital and um, and their take on and the men's take on science is is very material and it's very much pinned to the here and now to this moment in time it can only deal with the greater scientific concerns in the context of its own ultimately very petty concerns in the grand scheme of things. It's like um, the stone tape is kind of like rife with uh, pettiness and mm. with um, petty workplace conflicts. Like they discover yeah. they discovered their horror because uh, Ryan isn't impressed with their progress because they're not, not going to tell the boss that oh we have ghost tapes until they yeah. certain they have them mm. and they discover their horror that they're going to have to share task lands with the team working on the oh, new washing machine. Sure, much. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful Crawshaw with his obscenely over-engineered washing machine. Yeah. Yes. Whenever you see him, he's covered he's covered in a new colour of dive and trying to get colour fastened to work. He is exactly the kind of the nuts and bolts man. The, he's the he, gruff engineer, he's the one I make things. He's the uh, shed dwelling cottage industry whiz bang scientist. I <laughs> love him. <laughs> I kinda I have a certain love for love for Mr. Crawshaw. Mm. But <laughs> but at the same time, it's just sort of like what Neil's doing there. But sort of like there's something so crude about mm. Crawshaw, something so vulgar about him that he is kind of sort of like uh, setting up this practical engineering um, sort of like um, um, product orientated way of going about things with the more uh, almost bohemian uh, yeah. scientific approach. And that they're all sort of like they all do all feel sort of like um, yeah, you know, sort of like particularly the character of Peter is sort of like um, is quite kind of decadent. You know, he's. Um, He's sleeping around, although he's a married he's man. He's kind of no better than Crawshaw, though he really likes to project himself as the more scientific and I mean, more he dignified is, of them. But oh, he's, he's absolutely horrible. He yes. gets yeah. he gets pissed and gropes still. Yeah, <laughs> it's a <laughs> yeah, he's awful. Absolutely um, awful. But, like they're all more or less awful, except for Jill, really. Yeah, <laughs> Jill. Jill is the kind of the, the transcendent, scientifically transcendent, psychically attuned, uh, technologically literate, and philosophically good and progressive Jill. She's kind of like, she, she's the kind of, she's the Hamlet and they're all a bunch of failed Horatios. <laughs> <laughs> 
To bring it back to Terra. <laughs> to bring it all back necessarily to Terra. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's kind of, yeah, the. And this, go, this again goes back into our sense of deep time, just to, uh, to demonstrate the depth of it by showing the shallowness of our own time. I'd like to make a few comments about time in general, if such mm. a thing were to be possible, in relation to hauntology. It's absolutely crucial to talking about hauntology. Absolutely crucial. Um, in that, there is something hauntological about time itself. Now, earlier, um, you may remember I, when I was discussing uh, Fisher's definition of the eerie, uh, I spoke of eeriness as being the sites of a failure of presence and absence. Um, to define that a little bit further, so like the ghost is the archetypal example of this because the ghost is the appearance of something which ought not to be there because its time is past literally past it's fallen out of the present um, the but will I say that time itself is, hauntolo- is hauntological that time is a haunting is that the way that we encounter time is in precisely this manner, in that um, in that it is spectral, that it is both here and not here. It is always still to come, and not yet, and not now, and gone simultaneously. Mm. The present moment is the uh, echo of the future as it falls away into the past. Uh, and I'm, I'm no, this, I know I'm using extremely po- uh, almost <laughs> unnecessarily, you might say, poetical language here. But this entirely is necessary. It's entirely necessary, and it's also inevitable for when we're, when we're discussing Derrida because of the influence that the German philosopher Martin Heidegger had on him. And mm. Heidegger believed that the only way you could do philosophy now was through poetry, was uh, through thinking about things poetically. So when we think about time poetically, and for Heidegger and, by extension, Derrida, to think of something poetically is kind of to just let it be what it is most ordinarily, in its most uninterrupted way of showing itself to us. And when we allow time to do that, we find that time is a flow. But it's a flow where... It's a flow coming out of the future and falling away into the past simultaneously. The present moment is simply the is the point where the future becomes the past. It doesn't arrive in the present and linger, then fall into the past. The present is simply this spectral moment of the future ending as it becomes the past. Mm. And the notion of the ghost as an interruption of this, as the past resurging into the present moment, mm. is um, the most uh, haunt is the most hauntological um, possible um, experience. And I think that's sort of that's essentially the defining line between Jill and the other characters, in that they they can't see through time. Mm. <laughs> well, well, their their take on it is that. Um, what they're seeing in the form of the ghost is an echo. Um, it's something that's... It's an after-echo. It's sort of related to the past, but it is something definitely happening in the here and now. Mm. Um, and that's... And the distinction that um, Jill comes to is the fact that she's the only one who regard, who recognises the ghost as the ghost of a human. Because they find out that she did have this identity and she's the only one who can recognise the humanity of it, that she understands, yeah. That... But it was um, uh, a maid in the house yes. who, uh, and what it, it, it's implied happened, what happened to her is that 
when she lived in the house, she encountered the present state of the recording as it was then. Yeah. And it terrified her and it killed her. Mm. And she becomes the topmost layer of the recording. Because there's a scene where Jill has this horrifying uh, moment of realisation of, oh my God, what if she's aware? Mm. What if she isn't just a recording? What if she's not just a VHS tape? What if she is actually a, a, a psyche, a, a soul, a mind that is aware that all it can do is live out the moments of its extinction? Mm. But then there's also, there's a certain tension because there's, there's that idea, but there's also the idea that in the stone, there is something that, these are echoes, but there's some sense that there is a bit, there's an agency about them to some extent, or, or perhaps there's a kind of agency associated with the strength of what is originally projected into it. In that, like, Maybe what it is that they accomplish through, through their investigations, where, like I said, they, they erase the topmost layer. Mm. What if this is more like uh, scraping the, uh, the moss and ivy away from a statue? Mm. And what they're left with, once they've done this, is that this original primordial presence is able to assert itself again because we've scrubbed down to it. Mm. We've dug down to it. And it is something that Unlike the the um, the ghost that you know the, the ghost of the girl is something that is just a recurring visualization. The um, the entity that appears at the end does appear to it's sort of not just its image that's been kept, but something about its nature, something about its kind of hunger. Mm. That it's something that dwells in the stone and is perhaps even kind of drawing things to it, drawing kind of conscious conscious entities to it to feed itself in some way perhaps this is something that was ultimately more intentional than they really than is really kind of talked about but to uh well, yet yeah, to, to use uh, another lovecraftian title uh, it is a shadow out of time yes it's um it's a, a monster from out of time constructing itself out of the present and it is still monstrous mm. and that's also um that actually links to something i wanted to talk about or bring up is the fact that um, this was this was uh, released in 1971, as we mentioned earlier. But crucially, it was released on Christmas Eve of 1971 as part of their Ghost Stories, as part of the BBC's Ghost Stories at Christmas series, which up until that point had been uh, more or less exclusively associated with M.R. James. M.R. James being a famous kind of early 20th century ghost story writer. Yes, yes. Who was, all, all hail M.R. James. All hail M.R. James, who was also very influential on. Um, on on H.P. Lovecraft, mm. uh, Lovecraft was certainly a fan, um, and his just a bit of background. He wrote exclusive, well, he wrote exclusively stories to be read at Christmas, uh, usually in the halls of Cambridge, where he was an academic for many years uh, before he was provost of Eton, I believe. But um, <laughs> but then this um, this tradition was revived in the late nineteen sixties by the BBC in the form of these television dramas. But this decision to suddenly kind of move from that to MRJ or to um, the stone tape is an interesting one because the stone tape it could in many ways be um, an MR James story um, by that I mean that one of the sort of things that he's um, very that is very distinctive about the works of MR James is the fact that whenever he depicted ghosts they do have a physicality to them they're not kind of theatrical ghosts they can they are, do something they can do something um and they're always very very physical but physical in a way that is kind of alien they're very slimy they're either kind of corpses but corpses that don't that are neither kind of zombies nor ghosts they're um sort of they're part of they're some sort of something that's sunk into the fabric of um of england in mm. most cases but sunk with um not with um 
with the process of decay, but sunk with a sense of actively hiding in wait for things. Um, we see this wonderfully with um, stuff like the Tractate Mid-Oth um, and Whistle and I'll Come to You, the famous one. Where yes, if you haven't read um, a, whistle, a Whistle and I'll Come to You, my lad, do yourself a favour and do so at the next possible opportunity. It is wonderful. There's and also, yeah, a very good uh, 1968 television adaptation of it as well. Uh, which we might very well cover at some point, yes. actually, yes. Uh, one other thing that kind of crops up a lot in M.R. James' stories as well is a kind of strange connection to physical items, or particularly to technology. Um, like, uh, to give one example, there's a um, story called A View from a Hill, where a man is able to see a landscape from the past by looking through a, um, a um, it is a kind of telescope device. It's binoc- I think it's more of a telescope than binoculars, um, but... Um, it's an ocular device. Ocular device where he sees the world as it was um, several centuries earlier, um, and he sees kind of a church that's no longer there and a gallows hill that's no longer there, but, but is left there. But um, the reason this feels like the the stone tape is that he didn't just say this is a haunted ocular device. It's not just kind of like ooh, that's a weird thing. Uh, the story then kind of goes on, and they actually discover that in the substance of um, of this device, there's a chamber filled with oil that's been mixed with the remains of a dead man. Um, which, <laughs> which oh, how ghastly! That, yeah, which is both ghastly, horrible, but also fascinating because it's this idea that like it's going back into psychic media. It's this idea of like physical things can. Thoughts and memories contained in physical objects. In but matter, yes. In matter and accessible through technology. Mm. Um, and to tie this back to uh, Mark Fisher and the original usages, well, not the original, but the usages of hauntology in the 2000s, uh, in the interview that Fisher did with Burial, the mm. um, legendary uh, dubstep musician who is one of my very most favourite musicians uh, of, of all time in this interview um, Burial names M.R. James as like part of his like childhood like um, memories that's sort of like part of what he's doing is creating a music that sounds like it's haunted mm. and uh, yes it's something very, so yes it's all it all ties together all ties yeah. together okay we are now going to move on to our concluding remarks about the stone tape Hey. Um, well, how does one uh, well, offer concluding know, remarks after all I, this excitement? Um, I enjoyed it. Not not healthy yum yum. Enjoy you understand. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's my favourite line in the entire thing. It is a wonderful line. It's full of. It's it's just a. It's just a really solid bit of telly, isn't mm. it? It's very it, strange. It's very weird. It's it's kind of remarkable that this just descended upon the world at the time uh, it did. I mean, it was strange times, but this not is... Not to sound like a crotchety old man at the age of 25, but, oh, oh, they wouldn't make it now. They wouldn't make it now. You don't get telly like that now. They tried. Well, they tried it on the radio. There was a 2015 reboot on the BBC. Was it any good? I didn't enjoy it, but it did have <laughs> a very interesting kind of sound dimension um, that I'd kind of... Perhaps we could return to in another episode because um, it was... One of the crucial things about it was it was recorded live and it was recorded in the crypt underneath St Pancras New Church uh, in London, Ooh. which is a very, very interesting place. If you're in London, do get a chance, do go see it. But um, you might even run into us there. Yes, lurking the about in the shadows. It's the one that's like got these weird. Sort of, they're called caryatids there, um, or caryatidae, which are like um, 
in the place of pillars, you've actually got statues of women. And um, actually, no, this is fascinating um, and a brilliant place to record the stain tape because they are they are women, but they're not just um, classical women. They are the the uh, figures out of classical mythology who would be the kind of sentinels at the gates to the underworld. That's they're carrying. Yeah, it what is. What are they doing in the Christian church? Well, that's that's <laughs> the crazy thing because I mean they're they're carrying um, extinguished torches. Um, and also Grecian urns. So it's saying, like, yeah, we're here to transport you down into the crypt, and below them is the door into the crypt, which is now an art space and um, events site where they where they did this new recording of the Stone Tape live. Excellent. And they did very, very interesting things um, with sound, and particularly, actually, um, feeding into... There's this idea that's been kind of criticised and more or less debunked in a lot of cases of... Um, uh, audio archaeology, uh, which is kind of one of those things that's tangentially related to the stone tape in paranormal circles, um, where you could get the sense of how the past was by projecting sounds into physical spaces. A very much more kind of down-to-earth, but at the same time scientifically dubious take or variation on the stone tape. Yes, that, but, sounds, that sounds very, very curious. Okay, yes. maybe we can revisit this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, whether you like it or not, we will probably revisit it. Well, that was the inaugural transmission of The Weird Signal. Uh, next time, uh, which will hopefully not be very long, hopefully perhaps only a couple of weeks, depending on how well sorting all this madness goes, mm. we are going to come back and we are going to talk about something similar but different. Mm. Uh, I have been Sean. I've been Lucy. And thank you very, very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.